Hi, this is Lynette Nylander, host of NTS Radio's new podcast, Sounds and Style. Each week, I'll be chatting with some of culture's most influential figures, exploring how music and style links what we wear with who we are. Expect deep cuts into musical genres and fashion subcultures as my guests and I look at how the music they love has informed the work they make today. This season, I've been chatting with Lily Allen, Martine Rose, Mel Ottenberg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Digging with Flow. Today we're joined by a musician, artist and writer. Born in Hull, she co-founded performance art group Coombe Transmissions in the late 60s, then industrial music outfit Throbbing Gristle, and later Chris and Cozy with fellow TG member and partner Chris Carter. We did the first Throbbing Gristle album and we all said, let's do an album because in years to come we can say it to our grandchildren if we've got any, look at this, I made a record once, you know, and that's, that's the first second Daniel report was that album. Although she's now a celebrated artist, her work was highly controversial in the 70s and 80s, and she was continually censored by institutions and publications. Musically, she's been equally pioneering. Throbbing Gristle spearheaded the non-music industrial movement, and her 80s output as Chris and Cozy was just as original. Her work across disciplines is forward-thinking, collaborative, radical, and always underpinned by a DIY ethos. This DIY attitude extends to her gardening as well, which is a pastime that she loves. This week we're planting carrot seeds and onion sets at our guest's own vegetable patch in the English countryside. She and Chris now live in a converted school, which also houses their music studio. They're still prolific musicians, each working on solo albums. Our guest has also received wide acclaim for her brilliant memoir, which is titled Art, Sex, Music. These are three of the defining things in her life. 
Throughout her art, she's used her own image, informed in part by her work in the sex industry. Her writing style is just how she is in real life. No nonsense, to the point, and often extremely funny. I was so excited to meet her. She's a bit of a personal hero of mine. This week, we're digging with Cozy Fanny Tutti. So, Cozy, you were thinking onions, carrots, onions, or onions, carrots? Carrots right down the centre of those hoops. Mm. And then onions either side, ah. like that. And then they, because they're on the outside of the carrots, ah. they keep the carrot fly away. So onion, carrot, onion, carrot, onion. Yeah. Got it. OK, great. Because it's been so cold, I haven't done much. I did plant the, tomato, uh, the potatoes, but um, some are late coming up. But I expected that because they hadn't sprouted enough. But, yeah, they're, they're doing OK. The strawberries are doing brilliant. The asparagus has just gone, yeah, that came really early. Mm. So we're still cutting the asparagus spears. And just, you know, yeah, transplanting foxgloves that seed in the veg patch, which is handy because I get free plants. Yeah. Do you take quite a relaxed attitude to what goes where and seasonal sort of timings? I just learn from the mistakes and I just think, all oh, right, that's not right there. Yeah. Like, I can't grow rhododendrons here because the soil isn't right. I'd love to, you know, but camellias and stuff. Mm. But here, it, it isn't bad. I mean, the, these veg patches were created from when the tarmac was taken away from the, as the playground got broken up. Because this was a school? It was a school. Was that the first time that you'd started growing vegetables or is that something you'd done previously in life? No, I think like you, Dad. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was just a case of... Post-war, they were used to growing vegetables and food, mm. so he carried it on. And um, and it was kind of my pocket money job. Do you usually garden alone? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> do you prefer it that way? I think I do, yeah. Because, like you said, you have your own way of doing things and I kind of know where things are, especially if I've planted bulbs and don't go digging there, you know? Mm. I, I suppose... So much else in your life has been very collaborative, work-wise or art-wise. It must be nice to have a sort of creative area that's your own. I suppose so. Plus, Chris isn't into gardening, so that's that. (laughs) Sometimes it's no deeper than that, isn't it? It's good having someone do this. (laughs) I should get you back to thin them out, because that's the worst bit. Let's get the um, onions in before we forget where we've been. Yeah. If I make a small hole, yeah. the birds can't pull them out so easy, or they can root easier, basically. And how do you um, cover them with netting yeah. over the things? Okay. Yeah. Can you grab a handful of the white ones? Yeah. Do you do them in rows of according to colour? Not really. I've probably got too many now. Let me know if you want some onions later in the year. What kind of things have you got going on at the moment? Are you uh, working on music? Is that still something that you and Chris are, are busy doing in the studio? We wish we were. Because <laughs> I'm um, doing art stuff at the moment. Oh. So um, it's not that I don't want to do the art stuff, obviously, but the um, music, we set everything up to do the music in the studio. And so far, we haven't managed to get in there to start, you know? Right. Which is frustrating, but... 
It's just the way things are. Different projects take precedence, you know? Yeah. So, and it's sort of time-sensitive, whereas recording the next work that we want to do, we're both going to do solo albums, so we've both got... In the studio, we've both got separate setups. <laughs> and, uh, and In we'll a get... shared room? Yeah. It's big enough. I'll show you later. Oh, that'd be amazing. So you're not a perfectionist in the garden? No, I, th I don't think you can be with gardening because for a start here, whatever goes on under the top of the soil can move seeds anywhere so they pop up, you know, a couple of inches away from where you've sown them. Mm. So if, you know, if you've got ants or something like that, everything's got to live under there, hasn't it? Mm. I need some more onions. I am kind of, kind of precise and I like things done properly. Mm. But I don't think that's been a perfectionist. That's just been doing things right and being professional at the right time, you know. Mm. I'm not slapdash at all. At all. I used to be quite impatient doing things years ago. I'd, I'd want things to happen straight away and, and if they didn't, I'd sort of think, oh, I'll abandon that then. And then I met Chris and he was the opposite. <laughs> And he said, why, do you want it? why don't you finish it? Why don't you go back and finish it? I said, no, I'm fed up with it now. Is that sort of from a sense of not being good at something straight away? Like it not being, I don't know, if you work in a sort of DIY fashion where you're learning everything yourself? I think there's an element when you're doing that is that you think you just can't do it. So, you know, I thought I could do it and obviously I can't, so I'll move on to something else. Whereas, you know, Chris had this whole mindset of like, you just learn from your mistakes and... And you crack on and do it right. And mm. if it isn't really good that time, next time it'll be better. Mm. Um, so I follow the Chris Carter philosophy when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> he just loves working on things and helping people achieve what they're trying to achieve. And that's what he was doing with me when I first met him, you know. You don't have to abandon it, you know. We can figure it out. And he's like that with, with whoever we work with. It's so helpful and encouraging. I guess Chris Carter fan club here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. But he is. I, I don't know anyone who is quite like him, to be honest. And I've met a lot of people in music and art. Right, you're all done here, are you? Yeah, yeah. they're in. I'll just cover up the carrot seeds then. Great. I am always very interested by when people have romantic relationships and successful creative ones. It seems like something yeah, that I would find impossible. Really? Why? I think I'm Can't too... Can't separate the two? No, no, not at all. And I think I'm too controlling. Well, Chris might say that about me. <laughs> maybe, well, and then in that sense, maybe it's like you've just got to find the right person. I think, yeah, and I think it's a relationship where what you love about the person is, um, is who they are. That's why you fell in love with them. Mm. So you, you don't want to change them, you know. You don't want to sort of, like, impose yourself on them and how they do things. It's not even a compromise, really. It's just an acceptance that someone's idea at a certain point is much better than yours. That's where and, I have trouble. Oh, do you? Oh, OK. I think so. Sometimes I can see it after the fact that someone's idea was better, but I think if I've got a vision in my head 
yeah. something I want to do or the way I think something should be done. Mm. I sometimes find it hard to, you know, enter that true spirit of collaboration that you seem to have, have nailed in your life. Well, I don't know, because when, I, when you collaborate outside, when we collaborate with anyone outside of just us two, mm. there are moments where you think, no, that really is not the way it should go. You know, especially with music, you sort of, like you just said, you can you can see and hear the future of what this track is going to be just by one element, whether it's a melody or a drum or something. And you think, why are we taking it in a different direction? I don't understand. Why can't they hear it? It's screaming at me, you know. It wants this melody, or but that's the thing of collaboration is that everybody has input. Yeah, and you have to learn, I guess, not to be rude, the right word, but dismissive of people's... Oh, yeah, Chris is great at that. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's really diplomatic. That's an amazing asset. Yeah, but, I mean, a lot of um, studio people are, when they're rec especially recording vocals, because it's such a personal thing. You can, really, um, you can really mess things up if you say you don't like the take the, in the wrong way, you know? I bet. Because, I mean, the voice is so important and individual to someone it's like such a really deep insult to suddenly say your voice isn't right you know and you sort of think what mm. <laughs> what, but, was, what was it like when you first started recording vocal stuff either for TG or for with Chris and Cozy I mean was it horrible hearing your own voice on tape or did you did you like it um no because by then I'd, I'd done vocals in TG anyway and it was just very different. And we, me and Chris were both finding our way into doing things together on our own. And, and we'd kind of gone on that, shifted from TG already anyway. You know, if you think of distant dreams and mm -hmm. then it was sort of going over to what we ended up doing as Chris and Cozy. So it wasn't a, a big leap for me. And we, both of us, went into doing sort of like sing singing and, you know, composing songs with hooks and verses and all the rest of it. So it was just finding our way into the kind of music we wanted to hear and we felt sounded right, you know. Have you done all the way along there? Yeah. Wow. No, I put an in. OK, right. <laughs> Can we get this back in? Okay. See, I'm getting bossy now. <laughs> Maybe this is a, an example of poor collaborator. <laughs> Has there been anyone that you've ever worked with? Yes, that's been poor. <laughs> that wasn't going to be my question. I mean, I would love to know that, but I won't make you say. More um, that you were scared to work with. Oh, God, no. No one that was ever sort of, you know, big heroes that was intimidating to you? No. I, you don't seem like someone who gets particularly intimidated or daunted. No, I don't see the point. It's kind of an obstacle, isn't it? Yes. Oh. Oh, don't shoot me. We should say what that is. Bird scarer. So it's a sort of, maybe you're better place to describe it. It's a gas canister that does this explosion every so often to scare the birds from the field. And they're still there, even though it's gone off. But um, there you go. They're still there. I love it. <laughs> it's quite dramatic. It is. <laughs> yeah. But so, sorry, you were saying you've never, you don't see the point in feeling sort of intimidated or daunted by the prospect of working with people or doing things. But, and that, that struck me when I, was, when I was reading 
art sex music and reading about sort of you know early work for Coombe and street art and people you know what was the wagon thing wagon train yeah the wagon train oh, yeah <laughs> stuff like that yeah just being very sort of I don't know maybe confrontational is the right word but I don't you see I don't see it as being confrontational yeah what is the word for it just I think it was just different yeah and different to what people expected and and it was it was fun there wasn't a lot of fun in the late six, well in London there was you know but up north in Hull it was very dark and um and I was free for the first time you know mm. just to do what I wanted to do without having to answer to anyone and amongst friends, you know. I would find that very daunting. What, being part of a group and just working together and helping each other and... When you put it like that, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it is, really. It's the basic thing, isn't it? I was reading about the Delia Derbyshire film that you made. Oh, yeah. And that sounded amazing. Oh, it was fabulous. I absolutely loved every minute of it, doing the soundtrack and the film. Working with Caroline basically was lovely. It's great when you meet someone that... You thought all your friends were already around, if you know what I mean, mm. and, and your um, collaborators or whatever, and then someone new comes along and you just have an instant rapport. Could you maybe talk a bit about the process of the, of the soundtrack? Because it was more than just scoring the film, right? It was a bit more... I mean, in a sense, you were sort of collaborating with, with Delia through the past... Yeah, and, and Caroline was the same with her approach to the film. And when we got together, we both had the same feeling about Delia and how, how we should sort of, like, respect her and represent her. And it, it wasn't about us. It was a, has to be about Delia. It wasn't about a film and a soundtrack. It was about Delia in the film and Delia's music to go with it. So that was the lovely thing about it. It's a perfect collaboration, to be honest. And there was no conflict at all. Caroline had um, a vision in her mind about what she wanted the film to look like and how different scenes were hopefully going to look and what their purpose was in regards to Delia's life and her story and her personal life too. Mm. So we did a lot of talking about that. And she also had sort of sounds in her head that she sort of visually wanted you know, them to knit together. She said, I want this kind of sound. So I would do something and send it back to her. She said, perfect, perfect. Just a bit longer, just a bit longer, you know. So that was, that was lovely. And, and then getting to um, be in the film as well, which wasn't really on the cards at the beginning. I said, I'm, I'm not an actor, I'm not going in the film, don't ask me. <laughs> uh, because of the way the film turned out to be and our working together on it with the sound and with her with her visuals and everything, she said, well, the way Delia was, it seems just why I'm seeing this is that you're representing Delia, like the future women after Delia, and you've done the music for her. Why wouldn't you be in the film? Mm. You know, she said, it just makes complete sense that we're looking back at Delia in the scene that I did, and we're looking after Delia when you're doing this music for her. So she wrote this scene to, to do that mm. and for everyone that, you know, everyone else that came after Delia, which was a, a really lovely thing. It I, was. I, to my shame, I don't know so much about her. I know I read this book 
actually recently that she was a sort of peripheral character in But Barely, which was nice because she's... It's about a, a mad old lady, basically, and she fancies this guy. And then Delia Derbyshire plays her friend. The bloater. And the, yeah, the bloater. Yeah, I just read that. What did you think about it? I really liked it because it was... I mean, it was written so long ago, it's a totally different style to what you'd, you'd sort of think of a book now. It's a bonkers book. It is a bonkers book, yeah. Do you know about her life, Rosemary Tonks, the author? I, haven't, I must look her up, actually, because I, I read the book, then I, I had to get on with something else. And, um, but I, I really liked it, and it was bonkers, absolutely bonkers. I don't know if I've... I've not really read anything else like that, really. No. It's and a very bizarre book. I like it. It sort of, like, made me want to go back in time to books that were written around then because they were written very differently. Styles of writing changed so much. Mm. And um, it's just great to re read something that it doesn't stop short on anything, does it? No. It's, and it goes, like, jumps from one thing to another and you sort of think, what? And, yeah, the bloater. It's so weird, that whole situation with her, isn't it? It's crazy. I wanted to read it because of um, Delia... But then, um, and yeah, I could recognise Delia in it. Really? As I, yeah, as I was reading it, yeah. Because of all the research me and Caroline did about her, you kind of get a real feel for Delia. I think that was what was really important with Delia, is that getting to know them as much as you can in, by the culture that they lived in at the time and what they faced. Mm. It was really important. Because mm. we all deal with it differently now. It's so different now to when I was, in, when I, I was doing things in the 70s in the 80s and even in the 90s. You know, it's such a different um, landscape, music, um, for everything. Mm. I feel like I read somewhere, though, uh, you saying that you were pleased that you were sort of... your life spanned the decades that it has so mm. far. Is that something you still feel? Yeah, I think I've, I've, I've been blessed. It was, yeah. I really do, because I've seen... Yeah, I've seen technology come through. Televisions weren't around when I was born, you know? Mm. But the internet must have... I was thinking that the internet must have been amazing for you yeah. when it started, because your early work, so much of it was um, collaborative through, like, mail art and things yeah, like that, and posting exactly. things around. So then when the internet comes and you're able to do that more freely, that must have been something that That's was exciting. That's a great advantage, but where's the evidence of your relationship with someone? <sighs> True, but is that not a bit... You don't, do you need it? I just think there's a real value in something that is physical. Like, um, when I've been doing this, this art project at the moment, I've gone back into my archive, and I did with my book, and um, I pick up something physical from someone that they've sent me, even, say, just my mother's letters. Now, if she'd sent me an email where, you know... Okay, well, did we, did we archive, archive those emails, you know? Mm. Or, you know, are they on the cloud now no, with um, maybe, oh, the drive's gone. Gone, you know, mm. lost forever. Whereas I've got my mother's handwriting on a piece of paper that was posted in the morning in Hull and I got it in the afternoon. And that tells you everything, you know. The post office for a start, you know. Mm. And the fact that my mum was writing to me even at that time because... I was, you know, thrown out. Yeah. But um, you just don't get that now. It's nice to leave a trail other than a digital trail, some kind of physical trail, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I found a little note the other day, actually, in an envelope, like flowers 
from one of the fans that uh, used to follow me round. He was a cab driver, a black cab driver. So I used to get a lift home every time. Yeah. And um, and he said, um, what did he say? It's wonderful to be sad. Um, something about because I've had the wonderful time knowing you. You know, even though I'm sad, it was really nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There was a DJ at the Arabian Arms, which is where Lily Savage used to do a lot of stuff. And I used to I used to dance there a lot. And um, the DJ was the landlord's son, and he was really into music. And he was one of the first people I knew that got a 12-inch single. Wow. Yeah. And he, the first time I heard Native New Yorker as well was him playing it. And it, that was just great, because I'd go there. And he was quite a horrible guy, actually, but what he was good at was music. Yeah. It was amazing. To, he'd get all the new imports, new 12 inches in, and... I'd get to hear him real quick. Wait, so did you go there to work or yeah. to hang out? No, to work. Wow, and so you would strip to his selections or you no, could also... No, I, I had my own music. All the girls had their own music. Yeah, you bring but stuff But the DJs used to, to have, like whatever, like Sade, everyone used to dance to Sade. Mm. And, um, and the DJ would always have that on hand because he'd be playing it anyway. Mm. Um, so some girls just said, have you got Sade or whatever, or have you got um, Muscles by Diana Ross? That was another favourite. And they'd say, yeah, OK, and they'd dance to that. Or if you'd forgotten your copy, you know, you'd lost it en route. Because you had to bring your own records to the yeah. spot. Heavy bag, seven-inch singles. One 12-inch I had, which was um, cocaine, that was it. Bye. No, you've lost me. I'll let you know. Yeah, let us know. This is what happens, you know. Like the plant names just go, this goes as well. Wow, you got half of I'll it. I'll probably remember it. Yeah. Later. As soon as we walk out the door, <laughs> you'll remember Kale. it. Ah, oh, there you go. Oh, JJ Kale, really? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. I used to dance to that. I loved it, it was great. Yeah, amazing. It was kind of dirty, you know? Yeah. It's so weird, I and mean, I can say it now because I'm that much older. When I look back to what I was like, like at your age or earlier, you know. I was, I was keeping things because it was brilliant that we actually had a leaflet saying that we we're going to do something. Oh, wow, look at this. You know, I'd come from a council estate and I was supposed to go and, I don't know, be a secretary, a lab assistant, all this kind of thing, and just settle down. Then all of a sudden, God, look, look, we've been to the printers and this says that we're going to do something on Saturday. That's amazing. So, you know, I'd keep it because it was... Not a trophy so much as an achievement mm. that I never expected that I would have. So that's the reason that I kept things. It wasn't so much a sense of that you would want to look back on it in the future because you were living in the present, I guess. Some of them were. The first thing that, that occurred to me was when we did the first Robin Gristle album and we all said, let's do an album because in years to come we can say it to our grandchildren if we've got any, look at this, I made a record once. You know, and that's that's the first, second Daniel report was that album. That's why I like the bloater, I think. I like art where, uh, I don't know, it, it gets sort of canonised, I guess, as something more, but sometimes, in essence, it was just about fancying someone or yeah. wanting to do a certain thing that wasn't that deep. It was just fun. Yeah. Yeah, there is that aspect to it. But later on, yeah... There's the fun bits, and then there's the more serious bits in mm. life. Mm. You know, but the fun pit, the fun bits are the, are the ones that lead up to you doing something else. Mm. And they're as important, really. Otherwise, you know, there's a kind of trajectory of, of in life. Is it when you look back on your artistic career so far? 
does it surprise you? Like, did you think if you could be 25, 30 and then look forward at all the things that you would go on to do? I wouldn't want to, because I wouldn't do it, would I? Do you think, because is that, you wouldn't do it, why? Because I'd be thinking about it. Not yeah. that I didn't want to do it. It's just that I'd, I think if I could see into the future and what I would, would be doing and what had happened to me and so on, oh, that would be great because I knew that I was going to be all right. I wouldn't mm. think that. I'd just think, oh, heck. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? You know. I don't think it's good to know that because it changes things completely. You know, Star Trek, you don't mess around with stuff like that. Totally. And I suppose as well, is it might be a strange thing as a sort of such a countercultural person in the 70s. Is it weird now that your art that was once, you know, censored and whatever and said to be, what is the famous quote? Oh, that you're destroying society. What, records of civilization. Yeah, records of civilization. Yeah. We haven't got much of a civilization at the moment. Oh. So, and I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but is it strange that then those same institutions now are, have changed and accepted you? That's not important. Mm. It was just like I said, you know, that I was doing something that I, you know, I thought this is great, my life is amazing, I get to do this and there's evidence of it and people are there and enjoying it or not enjoying it and letting me know and I've got to react to that and then move on, you know, mm. my responses to stuff. But no, it's, um, as well, you've got to realise that there's a, a different, um, different people involved with the institutions now that are more open-minded to things. And I think that has a lot to do with it. But I still get problems with being censored. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Still get problems with it. <sighs> and then it went very quiet. <laughs> because I'm not going to say what they are. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Absolutely fair. Oh, we've got to put these in first. OK. I'll put these in and then you, you'll know where they go. OK. So the same position as that. It's just to hold the nets up, really. Great. So all of this, your gardening knowledge, it started when you were younger, but things like, you know... This, yeah. This is um, financial constraints. You can buy cloches and stuff like that, mm. and you can buy these, which arrived on the market after I did this, but they're not in the same way. These are just literally the edging from Formica Tops, which is really cheap. You buy it in strips. Oh. It's like a quid for I don't know how long. So I just pointy ends and use those. And the, and the netting as well, I don't buy it every year. It's just it's pond netting. Mm. I just cut it just to the right length and I don't know how long I've had it. Mm. Years and years and years. But yeah, this was, because I couldn't afford it. When we moved here, we were brassic, as they say. You had nothing. I, would, I was just happy that I had 18 quid a month child benefit. <laughs> That you get, you know, like, you get an allowance from the government when you have your first child. Yeah. And that was, you know, the only regular income we ever had, 18 quid a month. I think sometimes it's... it's I've been reading this book about um, the politics of gardening, sort of a, a historical thing about British gardening, basically. And a lot of it's about... I'm specifically interested in allotments. Oh, um, yeah. For, for various reasons. But there's lots of stuff in it about how... Gardening is often seen as a sort of, I don't know, it's been made academic in many ways and that can be off-putting to people 
because they feel like they don't know anything about... Well, you've got to know all the Latin names, have you? I exactly. I don't even know some of the names of the plants in my garden. They're just, just there. They're, they're nice. just, you know, I think, oh, that's nice. And I bring it home from the nursery. I don't even look at the label. And I just all I look at the label is to see where it'll be happy. Mm. But these are um, aquilegias here that you see on the veg patch, the little pink and white. Yeah, they're lovely. Yeah, they just go everywhere. But they're lovely. I really like them a lot. Were they deliberate? No. No, they just appear. <laughs> Gorgeous. It's quite nice. They just appear anywhere. There's one there, look, in the concrete. But it's lovely. Mm. I've got the first... I think I bought two in the first few years we were here. And there was a lady across the fields and she had loads of plants out the front of the house for sale and you could go inside. So I went inside and she just sat in, round in her garden. I said, And I saw them. I said, oh, they're lovely. And she caught... I didn't know they were called aquilegias. She called them tarts of the garden. <laughs> she said they go everywhere, darling. Is gardening something that you did as a child? Did it sort of take a back seat or is it something that's always been in your... Well, it depended on where I lived. I mean, when I was young, I, gar I gardened. Because um, I had to for my pocket money. And it was really tough going, you know? I bet. But um, after that... I moved somewhere that didn't even have a garden, so nothing happened then in Hull. And then when I moved to London, into the studio on Martello Street, didn't have a garden. Becquerel did, and one of the first things I did was try and grow things. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, oh, there's a little garden. And I mean, it really was little. It was, you know, like the terrace houses down Beck Road. They've yeah. just got like a yard, really. But... Um, outside toilet and just next to that was a little someone had put like a rockery with a bit of soil in it so um i planted i think i planted runner beans and and then i left so i never got to eat them the ducks are flying again i'm going to turn the water on great i'll give them a drink not that one gentle maybe i'll ask you as you um as you water these in, about, I suppose just, I'm interested in the music that you listen to in your spare time, or if you listen to music generally. Sometimes I think music people are assumed to always be listening to stuff all the time and have music on 24-7, but sometimes that's not the case. No, I don't. I, don't. I find it distracting, because I start analysing things. <laughs> it's terrible. But the ones I don't analyse are the ones that I end up really loving because they bypass that kind of impact on me, you know, that response. And um, so, yeah, but when, the most time I listen to music is, is when I'm asked to do a playlist. Oh, is that what, for sort of... Like for NTS or anyone else, you know. Ah, I see, yeah. I see, I see. And in that process, do you revisit old things or hunt for new stuff? Both. Because old, old things are always going to sort of like, oh, wow, you know, everybody's nostalgic in that respect. But having said that, when I listen to some old music now, the music that I really did not like at the time, in the 70s or 80s, I think, this is just commercial rubbish. I can't stand it. Now I love it. Really? Yeah, yeah. What's I, I really appreciate it for the songwriting and the arrangements and, yeah, like Blondie. I couldn't stand Blondie back then. Really? But I adore it now. Yeah. How funny. I thought it was a sellout, because that was the time. You know, it was a real record company with a so-called independent punky thing. 
And then now you just appreciate it for the, the music itself rather than it's... Yeah, yeah. And, and because I know more about the background, that makes a lot of difference. So in some ways I was ignorant of that and... Yeah. You know. So my opinion was it made in ignorance of Debbie Harry and stuff, yeah. Yeah. But it was a reaction back then, you know. I mean, we were doing non-music, so the commercial music was of no interest to me, and I didn't... I know because the association with it as well. Combine Harvester in the background. I suppose we've completed the bed. Yeah. Are you happy with it? Other than this one, because I don't know what to do with it yet. Yes, I'm happy with your work. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me and le letting me help you on your on your patch. Thank you for listening to Digging. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on the podcast app that you're using. It really helps more people to discover the pod. To stay up to date with new episodes, you can also subscribe to get the newest episode in your podcast feed straight away. Digging is an NTS podcast presented by me, Flo Dill. Produced by Lizzie King, with sound recording by Jennifer Walton. Editing on this episode is by Sam Stone, and it was mixed by Rory Bowens. Music, as always, is by the amazing Cleaners from Venus. This podcast was made possible thanks to NTS supporters. Become a supporter today for access to additional podcast content, live track lists when listening to NTS radio, access to supporter-only Discord and newsletter, and store discount. 50% of supporter proceeds go direct to NTS resident DJs. Find out more at nts.live supporters.